Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and it has been a while since Aaron Adams and I last were able to record a new podcast. I was traveling a good part of November. Uh, Drew Taylor and I, the, the gentleman I do the fine tuning podcast with, we were doing that event down at Walt Disney World, and then there was Thanksgiving. And I have to ask, though, where were you when you got the news about Stan Lee? I was at home. My wife called me because she works at a news station, so she mm-hmm. gets the feed faster than anybody else on the planet. And lo and behold, as soon as she told me, mm-hmm. within 10 minutes, the internet had exploded. Mm-hmm. Like I could have almost set a stopwatch. And so I was already in tears a good half hour before many of my friends. Aaron has put together a very personal, heartfelt tribute to Stan, which we'll touch on in the second half of the show. But a lot of stuff happened while we were away. And though I wanted to ask, because while I, uh, Nancy, Alice, and I were traveling, actually, we, when we were driving back home after the event in Orlando, what we did to kill time in the car was listen to Wolverine, The Long Night. Yep. And as the radio professional was the audio guy, we really enjoyed this, but I have to ask, what did you think of this? It, it, was it 10 episodes? Is that correct? Or? I honestly can't remember right now. I enjoyed listening to it. I can tell you that much. Okay. The challenge without video is that sometimes, especially when you're just, you're not using a narrator, some mm-hmm. dialogue can be very poorly done due to a need to describe things in the scene. Stephen King's The Mist was a great example of binaural recording. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be immersed and hear something in 3D with headphones, it's a great example for binaural recording. However, it's a very bad example of natural dialogue. So they have moments where someone would scream, it's like an 11 foot tall spider with too many legs and mouths all over its body. Quick, run! And you don't... (laughs) spend half an hour describing the monster before you turn tail and run, right? So Mm -hmm. there are these descriptive moments that I was afraid of, like, how are they going to handle this? Mm -hmm. But in Wolverine the Long Night, there are those moments of detailed exposition. However, because of the fact that we're following some detectives as the main characters, these detailed descriptions fall into place more naturally like someone's giving a detailed description to the police after a crime. Mm -hmm. The bad side is that since we're following police detectives in this story, Wolverine is not the main character in his own title. Yeah, if I had to pick a weakness for this audio drama, you you nailed it. In fact, mm. in a weird sort of way, Wolverine was kind of used like paprika. Very you know, in, sparingly. In, in this production, very sparingly. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was very effective and, you know, a wonderful performance. But yeah, Richard Armitage did a wonderful job in the performance, and I thought in after listening to the whole thing, I bet they had him in studio for about an hour tops to mm-hmm. record his entire performance for all, you know, nine or ten episodes. It, he's just that infrequently used. But even... With that one flaw, that this, I really enjoyed what they did here. Right. Uh, I'd love to see Marvel take another run. The challenge is finding a, a character that you can do this with. Right. I, I do want to add on a technical aspect. The thing that I think is the biggest triumph is the sound mix for this particular piece of work. The metallic reverb of the voices makes it feel like they were recorded in the cabin of a small metal boat. Or the lack of a reverb can make it feel like they're in a cabin made out of wood. 
Mm-hmm. The sounds of the environment that the voices are captured in are very subtle nuances that sell the illusion of reality. And there had to be a real temptation for the sound designers to push the sound effects out there and make them more of a star. Mm-hmm. And they were done subtly and gracefully, and I was very impressed with the quality of the work that was done on this podcast, episode by episode. It was mm-hmm. truly like cinema-quality sound without the need for images. And overall, I really hope that they continue with more audio adventures similar to this. Mm-hmm. I just wish the starring hero would be more present in a show with their name in it. I agree. And I remember one particular sequence when, what, characters are on the ground talking with kids who were up in trees uh-huh. and and they really they pulled it off all the dialogue was easy to understand but at the same time you got that authentic sound of that's somebody talking to somebody who's 20 or 30 feet up in a tree yeah and that's really really hard to do because when you're inside of a room you mm. get a reverberation off of the walls And even if you're in a sound booth that's completely dead and you get no reverberation, you still have to have the illusion of distance and open air. And the further you are away from someone, for example, I've lived in northern Michigan and I've lived in Mobile, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And if you if you were to go from wintertime in northern Michigan to summertime in Mobile, Alabama in a plane ride, you would not believe the difference in how sound travels through crisp, clear, cold air versus hot, muggy, humid air. There's a density difference, and sound travels differently. And it's subtle, but it's almost like being able to smell rain on the horizon. Mm-hmm. You know, you've done that before. You go, you've smell deep breath and you go, it's going to rain. You just know it. It's mm-hmm. that thing with sound of knowing how to mic something far enough away to get that sense of distance. And if it's in a room, what kind of room? What's the shape of the room? And recreating that is really hard to do. And that's why I'm so really impressed how subtly, beautifully they did that job. I agree. I agree. And speaking of hot, muggy air, the folks down at Pinewood, Atlanta, the folks who were working on the reshoots of Captain Marvel had to deal with that just this past month. Brie Larson posted some pictures of herself and Clark Gregg on the set where they were they were doing some reshoots, which if another film were doing reshoots three and a half months before it, were, it was going to be released to theaters, the entertainment press would be full of stories about panic at the executives and yeah. know, something's gone wrong. And this is standard. Just, yeah, that I mean, that's the thing. These days, especially with the Marvel movies, they work on these things right up until release. In fact, sometimes after release. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's my favorite story about the original Avengers. They had had the premiere in Hollywood on April 11th, 2012, and Joss Whedon, you know, just sort of sat there watched the movie. He's like, eh, we need a better button than that. And, and literally two days later, he's got the principal players back on set. And they saw, shot that scene where it's, you know, the, the shawarma battle The shawarma restaurant, right? Yeah, and, yeah, the shawarma scene. Yeah. What's kind of fun about that is if you actually know what's going on there, Chris Hemsworth has to do that scene with his back to the camera because I guess he'd already shaved off his Thor beard because he was about to start working on Ron <laughs> Howard's movie about uh, Formula One racer James Hunt, Rush. Right. And yeah. so it's like, I have the long hair, but I don't have the beard. So it's like, all right, just eat facing away from the camera but they shot that scene and so by the time avengers ended up being the the, the final film showed shown at the 11th annual tribeca film festival and on april 28th they had a brand new button for the movie 
So again, movie was had premiered, and they still futzed with it. So the fact that you know they're going back and working on Captain Marvel three and a half months before, this is as you said standard operating procedure now for what happens in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and mm-hmm. not really news. Same thing with <laughs> Star Wars. You know they always work on those to the last second. Never surprised when they say, ah, this Marvel movie's back behind the camera, only X amount of hours. It's like, yeah, so what? Tell me something I haven't heard before. So it's just, what's so funny for me is, is what actually is news these days in regard Mm -hmm. to the Marvel projects? And in fact, I just, a day or so before we recorded this, news broke that there is a, a Lego set that's keying off of Captain Marvel that evidently gives away some significant stuff from the movie. So I, I thought I it was fun, a stretch. Funko Pop, wasn't it? Well, the or, Funko Pop Or maybe Pop more people also, or, um, or licenses have accidentally let it out. But yeah, the one for Marvel and Jude Law's character. Yep. Yeah, yep. okay, yeah. But the cover of the box of this Lego set, which is entitled, by the way, Captain Marvel and the Skrull Attack, shows Captain Marvel in her red and blue suit flying alongside this silver and red shield jet, and inside the cockpit is Nick Fury. Hmm. Now, flop the box over, and on the back, evidently there's a picture of Nick Fury in close combat with Talos. Evidently, this is the Skull Commander that Ben Mendelsohn is playing in Captain Marvel. Okay. And on the wing of the now parked shield jet is Captain Marvel's cat, who... Correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron. In the comics, this character is called Chewy. I've never been a Captain Marvel follower, mm-hmm. so I know that we had spoken about Chewy in the previous epi- uh, in a previous episode about his yep. the tail appearing in the poster, mm-hmm. and so now referring it to Goose is like I, I don't know. I thought it was Chewy, but if it's Goose now for the movie, I, I don't <laughs> well, know. But if you heard why they're calling it Goose, is it a Top Gun reference? That's it exactly. The, oh, the Carol Danvers in this movie starts off as one of the U.S. Air Force's top fighter pilots. But again, the story starts in 1995. Top Gun came out, God. Uh, 82? Oof, I want to say 82? Yeah, I want to say 82 as well. Believe it or not, Top Gun is getting a sequel. They, yeah, they, in fact, it started yeah. shooting, I want to say, in September. Yep. What's kind of interesting is the person who's who's putting... Tom Cruise through his paces is Joseph Kaczynski, who directed Tron Legacy. He's done sequels to movies that are decades old. And it wasn't necessarily all that well received either, which is not quite the feather in the cap that you'd be hoping for. No, this is true. This is I mean, I liked it visually. I I loved everything inside the Tron world. I just, you know, I didn't think the story was what I was expecting after all these years, but whatever. I mean, I still thought it looked really cool and I enjoyed the ride, but one of the things that Marvel has been hyping is the whole notion of how Samuel Jackson will be aged down to play Nick Fury in in the 90s. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that kind of didn't work in Tron Legacy with those early early scenes of the movie where it was the young Jeff Bridges. And it was like, you know, kind of took you out of the movie very quickly. Like, whoa, you know. um, A, they've had so much technology advancement since that point in time. And mm -hmm. B, there's also just some great makeup artists that can take off wrinkles Mm -hmm. with a few brush strokes. And, you know, Sam looks damn good for his age. I mean, it don't take much for him to look 20 years younger, but a wig. Well, still very much looking forward to seeing this movie. And while we're we're here on the movie side of the street, 
probably should do an update on Venom, which again, Aaron, mm. I know not your favorite film. It's fine. People liked it. It's all good. Did well stateside, but overseas, oh my God. Yeah, it did phenomenally well. Yeah, in China alone has done $262 million, sold that many tickets, which when you factor in what it's done domestically and in other overseas territories, to date it's pulled in an astounding $844 million, which wow. why Columbia Pictures has already got Venom 2 in development. I mean, you and I both knew this was coming, what with the Woody Harrelson post credit. Sure, thing. yeah, yeah. But they've evidently locked a release date. It's October 2nd, 2020. And this was a deliberate choice because they're hoping to duplicate what happened with the original Venom, which was sort of a horror-tinged superhero movie. And the thinking is, if they drop it in theaters basically four weeks before Halloween, they'll be able to get horror fans and superhero fans to show up for this thing. Right. Speaking of sequels, the advanced buzz on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is so strong. And I, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, yeah. Drew Taylor has already seen the almost finished version of this movie uh, earlier this week. And he flat out told me that this is the best animated film of 2018. Yeah, he shot me an email and said, I'll love it. So I'm like, yeah, I plan on loving it. It looks really good. Yeah. But he just between, it's a great story, it's a great look, and... Sony Pictures Animation isn't wasting any time. They not only have a Enter the Spider-Verse sequel that they're planning, but they've also supposedly got a spin-off project that'll be built around the Spider-Gwen character, which Mm -hmm. which gets introduced in Into the Spider-Verse. Cool. but, But the plan for that movie is... They'll feature three generations of female web spinners. Is mm-hmm. with your knowledge of Spider-Man, is is that possible? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With mm-hmm. all of the different universes, I remember there was Paradise X and Universe X, mm-hmm. which was basically the end of the Marvel universe. You know, the big, huge, cataclysmic, and uh, it involved every character and every storyline all pulled together into this big, huge, epic mm-hmm. saga story. And in the process of that, Mary Jane, I believe, who was married to Peter in our 606 universe, Mm -hmm. they had a a daughter, and then Gwen was alive in a different universe, and she came into our universe, and her and Peter had a daughter, and so the two girls were like sisters. They felt like they were sisters because of this connection through Peter. Wow. It was one of those things where it's like when every different Marvel superhero has had alternate universes and alternate timelines, Mm -hmm. they start branching out into, well, okay, that could have really happened if there was an alternate universe. And so when they tell these big, huge stories, they'll sometimes pull into those alternate universes and grab something that may seem kind of obscure or unexpected, much like the amazing Spider-Ham showing up in this movie. I'm really excited. I think I'm most excited about that um, is because I was a big, huge fan of Spider-Ham when those parody comics came out. I always Mm -hmm. got them. So just seeing Spider-Ham in the ads made me excited. Given how much I enjoyed Spider-Man Homecoming, I have to admit, Spider-Man Far From Home, July 5th can't get here fast enough for me. Yeah. But at the same time, We're not going to see any footage from this thing for a long time because obviously we we first... It's being roadblocked by Infinity War Part 2, damn it, and I won't stand for it. Yeah, I know, but it's just until they resurrect Peter Parker, 
the studio can't put anything out there. Oh, that said, though, that there's a couple of websites that have already done a lot of digging based on the projects that Marvel's announced and already has in productions or already has in the can as to who's actually going to survive Infinity Wars 2. Mm-hmm. But, of course, Walt Disney Studios has released not one but two teaser trailers for Toy Story 4 which comes out June 21st of 2019. They've also got a teaser trailer out there for Artemis Fowl, which doesn't arrive in theaters till August 9th of next year. And it's like, you know, wait a minute, Avengers 4 bows in theaters on May 3rd? Where's that trailer? That's being roadblocked by Captain Marvel. Actually, what I've been told is that Captain Marvel will have the final, or excuse me, the second trailer. The teaser is actually going to be attached to Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, that's uh, which, right. Which arrives in theaters December 19th. And the interesting thing is not only will Mary Poppins Returns have the Infinity Wars 2 trailer, it will also have the teaser for Star Wars Episode Nine, which a year and a day from when Mary Poppins Returns arrives in theaters is when that Star Wars film drops. Alice, Nancy, and I went into Boston and cut a press screening of Mary Poppins Returns, and I was kind of stunned at how wonderfully entertaining this movie was. So if you're a Marvel fan who's just going to Mary Poppins Returns to catch Avengers 4, Infinity Wars 2, whatever the hell they're going to call it, stick around. You're going to want to catch this movie. Okay, that's... that's it. The cinematic is covered? Yeah, so I guess it's time to pivot to television and... It's hard to put a positive spin on this. This has been kind of a tough time for those folks who enjoy the Marvel Netflix projects. I mean, I know you had plowed through all the episodes of season three of Daredevil and and Mm -hmm. really enjoyed them. Yeah, no, I thought it was uh, a step in the right direction. Anything with Kingpin is great. Mm -hmm. The fact that we had finally introduced Bullseye into the storyline and the thing that is probably most frustrating is they kind of leave it with the cliffhanger of a I'll be back mm-hmm. and I'll show you what I'm really made of type of moment and we're not going to get that. What Aaron's referring to here is on November 29th Netflix announced that Daredevil would not be returning for a fourth season on that streaming service which given that what happened back in October when first Iron Fist you know, the NS was that wasn't going to get a third season and then Luke Cage, same thing. Then after that, it was like dominoes. Yeah, but the day after Netflix announced that Daredevil wasn't coming back for season four, Disney and Marvel released a statement where they said, we look forward to more adventures with the man without fear in the future. And so if you think about how Defender ended, (laughs) where an entire building fell on Matt Murdock and he still came back, a little thing like getting canceled by Netflix, that's not going to stop the character. No, yeah, he can he can live on on the other network, possibly. But I wonder, because they did have a true lack of numbers for those mm-hmm. shows overall. Yeah, social media and impressions. Yeah, that dropped, and, and they were using that as a, a gauge, which was actually very intelligent, because... You know, you can see how many people stream something and you can have Mm -hmm. that number, but you really don't know how many people liked it, really. Mm -hmm. And so when you see that tweets go up or tweets go down and stuff like that, you can tell whether something is positively received Mm -hmm. after you view your total sum of how many viewers you've had. And they saw those tweets drop dramatically and people just didn't seem to really care very Mm -hmm. much, which leads to its cancellation. So 
Even though Disney's going to have its own service, they're currently busy with The Mandalorian for the Star Wars universe. They've got mm-hmm. Loki and Scarlet Witch for the Marvel universe. And they've already tried The Defenders on Netflix, and it didn't do as well as they had hoped. Mm-hmm. So I really don't see them investing a whole lot of time, money, or effort to revive them quickly. I think that's a backburner. No, I, I, I agree. I, and in fact, I think the project that I feel saddest for is Jessica Jones, because they announced that a third season was going to go into production in mid-April, and they did. They actually began shooting in July. In fact, Kristen Ritter is making her directorial debut on at least one episode for season three. But clearly, while this was going on, the relationship between Disney and Netflix soured. Did it really sour, or did numbers just dictate we don't do this anymore? Because you can make a business decision without it being sour between the two parties. It's hard not to look at some of the decisions that Netflix has made. February of this year, they signed... Disney legend, master animator, Glenn Keane. He's he's going to be doing his directorial debut, uh, Over the Moon, right. as a Netflix project. And just this past month, Netflix signs Chris Williams, the co-director of Big Hero 6, which that's the first Walt Disney Animation Studios production to be based in a Marvel comic. And one of the reasons that people love that film now is it features that great little Stanley cameo at the end. But he's, uh, Chris is doing his own feature for Netflix, uh, Jacob and the Sea Beast. And mm-hmm. right on the heels of that, we get the announcement of Guillermo de Toro's stop motion version of Pinocchio, which is like one of Disney's key properties. And Disney's response to that was, like, okay, fine. We're doing a live action reboot of Pinocchio where they're in negotiations right now to have Tom Hanks play Geppetto. People who write about these movies are struggling to come up with a way to describe them. For example, right. the Lion King trailer that just came out yeah. ahead of the John Favreau version of that story. It's, it's the most viewed trailer in the history of Hollywood. But just people like, well, it's a live action reboot of the Lion King. No, it's all those characters are done CG and right. You know, it's still animated. Got, just the new new way of animating. It's old school versus new school. This is where we're at. I guess now. so. I guess so. Anyway, to, to circle back to. The Marvel television stuff. I just, for me, given the situation between Disney and Netflix at the moment, I just, mm-hmm. I feel bad for Kristen Ritter and the, and the crew who have worked so hard on season three of Jessica Jones because given the Elizabeth Olsen and Tom Hiddleston, Scarlet Witch and, and Loki projects, they're going to be featured on Disney Plus, their subscription service. And Netflix is not going to want to do anything really to help Disney or get people excited about Marvel streaming series. I bet you that the promotional effort for season three of Jessica Jones is the equivalent of a post-it note put up on a, a light pole somewhere in the middle of Manhattan. It's like, look, <laughs> you know, we promoted it. If you go to that post-it note, we, we said it was coming. And, and speaking of which, somebody who deserves as much attention as possible, that is the late, great Stan Lee. And when we get back from the break here, Aaron is going to share his thoughts about the passing of this legend. And we're back. Just give people a, a little more info about what was going on with Stan. I mean, face it, we're talking about a 95-year-old guy, so the fact that he'd had some health problems this year, I mean, as recently as February... He was hospitalized for shortness of breath and irregular heartbeat. And 
that yeah. caught a lot of people off guard because what the night before he'd been on the red carpet for Black Panther. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that the very next day he's rushed to Cedar sinai and he's supposedly in stable condition kind of rocked people. But, but Stan, being Stan, I want to say it's KABC out on the West Coast, caught him as he was going out of the hospital and interviewed him. I guess they just kept him overnight, stabilized the situation. But he said, I'm, I'm glad I spent the night in the hospital. It, it did me a lot of good. It probably did my fans a lot of good as well. It, it kept me off their backs for the evening. A month later, Lee had to cancel his announced appearance at, at Cleveland's Wizard World Comic Con. And that was pretty much the time that the whispering about his health issues, which again, a 95-year-old. Right. You know, not all that surprising. But He is a legend, but not immortal. No, no. So, morning of November 12th, Stan is rushed to the hospital. He's been battling aspiration pneumonia, which, as I understand it, is... What happens when stomach acid gets inhaled into the lungs? Mm-hmm. And staff at Cedar Sinai, heroic efforts, but Stan still sadly passes away. And the death certificate listed official cause of death is heart failure and breathing problems. And since then, respecting Stan's wishes, the family had a private funeral. Power Entertainment Stan's company, two days after this private funeral, revealed that there were plans in the works for Republic Memorial, a celebration of Stan's life and legacy. No word yet on a specific date or a venue, but this is an interesting legacy to try to get one's arms around, Aaron, isn't it? It's massive. So mm-hmm. if you just think of it in scope, it's massive. But if you also yep. look at grains of sand on the beach and instead of focusing on the grains of sand you focus on the beach it's rather Mm -hmm. easier to encapsulate all of that Mm -hmm. he was a storyteller Mm -hmm. if it was him on the red carpet or doing an interview he was telling a story Mm -hmm. if he was writing a comic book and creating a hero he was telling a story so for me stan was the ultimate storyteller simply Mm -hmm. after stan lee passed away one of his old Stan's soapbox editorials from December of 1968 popped up online. Let's lay it right on the line. Bigotry and racism are among the deadliest social ills plaguing the world today. But unlike a team of costume supervillains, they can't be halted with a punch in the snoot or a zap from a ray gun. The only way to destroy them is to expose them to reveal them for the insidious evils they really are. The bigot is an unreasoning hater, one who hates blindly, fanatically, indiscriminately. If his hang-up is black men, he hates all black men. If a redhead once offended him, he hates all redheads. If some foreigner beat him to a job, he's down on all foreigners. He hates people he's never seen, people he's never known, with equal intensity with equal venom now we're not trying to say it's unreasonable for one human being to bug another but although anyone has the right to dislike another individual it's totally irrational patently insane to condemn an entire race to despise an entire nation to vilify an entire religion sooner or later we must learn to judge each other on our own merits. Sooner or later, if man is ever to be worthy of his destiny, we must fill our hearts with tolerance. For then, and only then, 
will be truly worthy of the concept that man was created in the image of God, a God who calls us all his children. Holy cow. That's a, that's a great piece of writing. That's 1968, is that right? Yeah. As you can tell, I get moved by words. As you should. As you should. <laughs> the reason this showed up line mm-hmm. is the unfortunate fact that it is just as relevant in 2018 as it was in 1968. Mm-hmm. It helps to illustrate how in touch with the human condition the man was and how it influenced his work. I love that Stan did this sort of stuff. But at the same time, for me, what's fascinating about Stan is that you think, you know, we live in sort of a Kardashian's world here. And if you think about the letters page and the no prize that Stan would give out, he was almost one of the very first people to make himself, for lack of a better term, a brand, and, you know, a personality yeah. that was out there. Mm-hmm. How many people read the letter page that came with the comic with as much enthusiasm mm-hmm. as they read the comic itself. And right. that was largely because of what a great writer and how entertaining Stan was. Well, there is a moment in comic history where Stan was asked, or Marvel was asked, by, it was like the health department, governmental mm-hmm. agency, you know, and it was fo- trying to focus on making sure kids did not try drugs. Mm-hmm. And so they said to Stan slash Marvel, hey, can you do a comic book where it's drugs are bad type of message? And Stan said, sure. And so there's a Spider-Man comic, and I can't remember what the issue number is, but I think it's Harry Osborn, his buddy, gets hooked on smack or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the comic book code authority said, you can't publish this because it has drug use in it. The argument was, yeah, but we were... A, asked by a government agency to tell this type of story, and B, it's showcasing that drugs are deadly, you mm-hmm. know, that you shouldn't be using them. And the Comic Book Code Authority said, if you, you know, publish this, we could make sure that you never publish anything ever again and all kinds of horrible threats and demands and financial penalties or whatever. And Stan went ahead and argued it, and then when they got denied, they published it anyway, and it was the first comic book that did not get the comic book code of approval. Mm-hmm. And it was only after that comic book came out that other comic book brands said, oh, we can tell stories outside of the scope of what you perceive to be correct for young children and tell more adult type themes and go in, in a different avenue that we haven't previously gone before. And then you get things like Spawn from uh, Image Comics, where you know he's a demon from hell. So you have this whole new growth in the industry stemming out of this one instance where they went against the code and against the rules and did what they thought was right by telling this story. And that changed a whole industry off of one moment and, and bravery. And Stan Back was the, the backbone behind all of that. So kudos to him for that. Just to sort of walk through Stan's history now, I want to say starting in 72, he stopped physically writing comic books he became mm-hmm. uh, he was uh, 50 at the time yeah. uh and became basically the publisher at Marvel right and 
over that period of time, he became really more of a figurehead, yeah. engaging with fans at comic book conventions or giving guest lectures at, at colleges. But at the same time, I mean, the fact that he was out on college campuses, you know, talking about these characters, I mean, the very thing you, you were talking about, you know, the, the fact that they could cover that much more adult material. I mean, mm-hmm. he helped put Marvel in the spotlight, you know, on the forefront. Yeah, as far as Stan Lee goes, uh, and I know that we said, we, you know, I had a special tribute, so... I had to actually write the words out because when Stan passed away, I was emotional. I actually considered him more like family. Mm -hmm. Stan Lee gave me a universe and he asked for nothing in return except every once in a while I buy another book. Stan Lee taught me to read. Not just nursery rhyme level words like Jack and Jill going up a hill, but complex words like adamantium and vibranium. As a result of learning these two fictional words, I learned that different types of metal could have a different type of hardness. So in a way, Stan Lee taught me real science concepts in a classroom of make-believe. Stan Lee taught me a moral code. Real heroes look out for people that are in need of help, not for thanks or reward, but because they simply have the ability to help. Stan Lee taught me about social issues through the X-Men. Mutants are us. They're human, but they're different. Therefore, they suffer persecution in comics. Magneto equated it to the Holocaust in the X-Men movies. African Americans can find a parallel to slavery by the way some mutants were utilized by fictional agencies as involuntary workers. Or Asian Americans can equate it to Asian concentration camps the U.S. had during World War II. When mutants are rounded up for national security, Mutants are a thing that you hate and fear without reason or rational thought. Reading an X-Men comic gave you the other side of the story, like Charles Xavier's hope for coexistence for all of humanity against Magneto's kill-all-humans type of plans that usually invaded the universe. Stan Lee gave me a universe of boundless possibilities to venture to in my mind. The adventures ranged from the streets of New York to the jungles of Africa to the farthest reaches of our galaxy and sometimes even beyond that, From the negative zone to the quantum realm, big or small, earthbound, or on an intergalactic alien vessel, the universe was your playground. Stan Lee introduced me to classic characters because the guy had to pull ideas from somewhere. So when I found out there was a Legend of Thor outside of Marvel Comics, that made Thor more real. I started looking for the Legend of Spider-Man, and I still have not found one, Jim. Not one anywhere. But I I digress. Um, I I believe there's some cave paintings in France, but but, but I digress. So... So the Hulk is a direct ripoff of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's story. Mm -hmm. There are underground classic villains like Morpheus, who's just simply a bad Dracula, and many other villains from previous literature that has come before it. Not every idea Stan had was original, but he always found a way to make it his own. Stan Lee made me interested in storytelling. I don't think I would be in my career field if it weren't for strong storytelling abilities of the many writers and artists that I've loved over the years, Stan is included. Stanley literally changed the world, even if it was just one as small and simple as my world. In that way, Stan gave me everything I now have in my life. My career, my wife, who also is a fan of Stan, my hopes for a better world. All of the Marvel films that I love wouldn't be here without Stan the Man Lee. Looking around my home and my studio, I'm surrounded by toys, props, and memorabilia from all over the Marvel Universe. 80% of my clothing has a spider logo on it somewhere. So if you took away all of that, I would be left with a pair of white tube socks. I would have to wear them very strategically. My work, my entertainment, my imagination, my heart were full of Stan Lee's fingerprints. 
Out of all of his travels, I never had an opportunity to shake his hand and say thank you. So I'll say it now. Thank you, Stan, for my entire world. Wow. We will never speak of this moment again. <laughs> Fist bump, man, well, bro. I'm, I'm, I'm almost. I'm going to go hes- eat a raw steak. <laughs> I'm almost hesitant to. I had proposed as a camper for the show that we would go through some of the more. Uh, there's a whole bunch of people who just know Stan from his cameos for the f- films, and I feel kind of hesitant to. Follow up something like that with something as trivial as that. It's fun. No, let's let's end on the light note. Let's remember those fun little nugget moments. What was your favorite one out of all of them? As Aaron will tell you, I have a gift for over-preparing. <laughs> so, you know, I, I went back through them all, and there were yeah. 57 of them. So we're not going to touch on all 57, but the very first one was The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, the TV movie that was done for NBC oh, back yeah, yeah, in the yeah. of 89. Where Daredevil was his lawyer, right? There you go. So so Matt Murdock is defending Dave Banner, not Bruce. Well, as for his the first cameo in a, a Marvel feature release, that was May of 2000. That was when 20th Century Fox released Brian Singer's X-Men. Though, for me, I love the connective tissue between the trial of the Hulk in 89 and Ang Lee's Hulk movie, which was released in June of 2003, because in that movie... Stan plays a security guard who mm-hmm. works at the Berkeley's Biotechnological Institute, but the other security guard he's working with is Lou Ferrigno. Yeah. You know, so it's just sort of like, hey, that was fun. Two nods and one. But I guess for Stan, he talked about the one that initially excited him was 20th Century Fox Fantastic Four in July of 2005, but that was largely because he got to play a character that he'd actually created, the Willie Lumpkin, the I guess he was the the postman for the Baxter Building, mm. and I guess this character had t- popped up in a a bunch of the comics. So the fact that Stan, oh, I'm playing Willie. I this is the character yeah. I know. My favorites. I mean, I loved Stan's cameo in the original Iron Man back in mm-hmm. 2008, where Robert Downey Jr. is arriving for a charity at a charity function at the Disney Concert Hall in L.A. Mistakes. Stand for half. Yeah. I love how John Favreau actually kept that joke going in Iron Man 2 because as Tony's headed home from the Stark Expo, he he walks by Stan, who's wearing this, this you know, very obvious set of suspenders, and he mistakes him for Larry King. <laughs> and then I love that the Russo brothers, when they were doing uh, Captain America Civil War in May of 2016, proceeded to give Stan's character the opportunity to get back at Tony Stark, and he, he's delivering a package to the S.H.I.E.L.D. compound upstate, and he's, mm-hmm. I'm looking for Tony Stank. Can he sign for this package? There was uh, a little bit of an internet rumor that started bubbling about all of the Stan Lee cameos, that he was one of the, I think they're called Watchers. They had well, isn't, this... You know, in effect, it's so funny you say that, because isn't that... The reference um, of Guardians of the Galaxy when they're yeah, zipping Rocket you know, and them are zipping through the many warps and bubbles that Stan mm-hmm. shows up. And yeah, he's sitting there in a spacesuit talking about the Watchers giving his, his report of all the different things that he's witnessed. When that idea came up, there were a couple of filmmakers who actually leaned into that idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, in Venom, when Stan has a cameo, he actually runs into Eddie Brock on the street he turns to Eddie and says, in reference to Eddie's girlfriend, you know, don't give up on her, either of you. 
And, you know, so the notion is that somehow Stan's character knows that, that Eddie has a symbiote inside of him. So right. for me, it was kind of interesting that that's what they did. The sort of, yeah, okay, maybe he is this all-knowing, all-seeing character. And there's honestly so many of these that for the Lee family, the one that they enjoyed most mm. was May of 2016, the X-Men Apocalypse. But that was because... Stan appeared on screen with his wife of 60 years, Joan. Mm-hmm. Particularly poignant for the, the Lee family because they lost Joan within a year of the release of that movie. And, and in fact, Drew was just telling me about out ahead of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the directors of that movie decided, you know, this is Stan Lee. And we're animating him and we can't just give him one joke and out. Because you know, that's the thing, that Stan right. would... You know, his one complaint about the cameos is like, why do I always have just one line? Right. Evidently, the, the Stan plays the owner of a costume store in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And Miles Morales is looking for a Spider-Man outfit. And he, he goes into the store and Stan is able to dig out a Spider-Man outfit for him. And Miles tries it on and it's too loose and it's too baggy. But Stan said, well, it always fits eventually, as in... He'll grow to be the hero that New York City needs over the course of this story. And evidently, everyone who's been to the screenings, especially in the heels of Stan's passing, it's just, you can hear the audience that are like, oh. Yeah. And they've already filmed many cameos for future Marvel movies, so we can expect to see Stan a few more times in the future in brief glimpses and go, ah. Yeah, that well, it's interesting you say that. Uh, uh, Joe Russo was talking about how they did that. One of the reasons, actually, was that Stan didn't like to fly. So, you know, the whole notion of having to fly him out, particularly to Atlanta when he lived out in L.A. So what they began to do is they would bring him in. And, for example, I want to say in the summer of 2016, they shot four cameos of the course of one day. They did his cameo for Doctor Strange, which came out that fall, uh, November of 2016. They shot the cameo for... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 uh, came out the following May. Spider-Man Homecoming, which came out July of 2017. And then Thor Ragnarok, which was November of that same year. I guess the last time they did this, they had Stan out uh, relatively recently and bagged the Captain Marvel cameo and the Avengers 4. And mm-hmm. to give Kevin Feige credit when he was pressed by, I want to say, Variety about this, well, where can we look to get, you know, to see these final cameo appearances? It's just like, I'm not going to tell you. You know, Stan always appreciated a good surprise. So, yeah. you know, in, in respect to, as you said, this great storyteller, I'm not going to bullet the story. You're going to have to go to the movie and see this. For now, given that the last movie that's really become available on Blu-ray and DVD is Ant-Man and the Wasp, I guess that's a fun place to sort of leave this because... You've seen the, the movie, right? You've seen oh, a yeah. scene in this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where it's in the middle of the battle and, you know, it, it, the, the streets of San Francisco and Stan has his car keys out and he's about to get in his car and the car gets hit by a shrink ray and just you know, shrinks down to matchbox size. And, well, the 60s are fun, but I'm paying for it now. Right. It was a great scene. And like you, Aaron, I'll miss him. Yep. He gave me so much entertainment and so much fun. Over the years, and I know, look, you know, that there's a lot of people out there. Stan's legacy is complicated. We'll get into that another time. For now, let's just honor the man and 
like I said, when we have more information about Powell Entertainment's public memorial service, we'll be sure to share this on a future podcast. Aaron and I will be back here shortly, no doubt talking about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which I'm really, really looking forward to based on the buzz. Anything coming over the horizon that you're uh, interested in talking about, Aaron? Or? Marvel-wise, I mean, they've been canceling the shows that I have been watching, and the mm. TV shows I haven't been watching seem to keep going on and on for some reason. Maybe I've just got really, really poor taste. That's always a possibility. <laughs> You're, you have a, a discerning palate. You know, that, that's, that's true. Let's go that route. Well, All right, l- let know. me just state that when I was uh, growing up, we owned a video store. Mm-hmm. And so I consumed all of the film ever made from every genre for almost a decade. And so, yeah, after a while, I started getting really tired of Hollywood formula because there is so much of it. And my mm-hmm. interest started to get into the more weird, obscure, independent type filmmakers that want to make something different. Mm-hmm. So really, Marvel is my mainstream entertainment source. You know, when I want to watch something big budget blockbuster, it tends to be a Marvel movie. And then I look for more obscure stuff. So, yeah, I am sad to see that Daredevil's going by the wayside. And I will be very happy when Disney has its service up because I would love just an a la carte of Marvel and Star Wars at my disposal 24-7 because I would never turn it off. Then, well, 2019 is right around the corner and that means... Disney Plus is on its way, and we will talk about Scarlet Witch and Loki and whatever, however Daredevil comes back on future if, shows. If he comes back. Well, again, remember, we, we have that statement from Disney about, you know, they, there will be... It's smoke and mirrors. They're not bringing him back. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to see. But in the meantime, folks, thanks for listening today, and Aaron and I will be back with a... Marvelous Disney in the very near future. Till then, take care, okay? More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.